0: Welcome to Shades of Freedom from the Aspen Institute's Criminal Justice Reform Initiative. Be sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to Shades of Freedom on your favorite podcast app. This episode's guest is Latanya Tate, Chair of the Birmingham City Council Public Safety Committee and Executive Director of the Alabama Justice Initiative.
1: We really hold the power. We are the power brokers. And so the goal is to get out here. And this is what I tell people in community being a counselor. You are the power broker. I'm your advocate. I'm your mouthpiece. And so exercise that power. Most people have lost hope. And so it's going to take people like myself and others to really get out in these communities and and dig deep and bring that uh, level of hope back to get people to know that you are the power brokers and the makers, and you got the power to change and shape anything in this state that you want to see happen.
2: Welcome to Shades of Freedom. I'm your host, Douglas Wood, director of the Aspen Institute's Criminal Justice Reform Initiative. Latanya Tate believes that reform should be collective and community-based. She puts that theory into practice as a city council member and leading voice of criminal justice reform, not only in her hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, but nationally as well. Before becoming a council member and chair of public safety, LaTanya founded the Alabama Justice Initiative, which seeks to end mass incarceration and change criminal justice policy in Alabama. She was formerly a parole officer for nearly a decade. Holds multiple degrees in criminal justice and public administration, and was named a Soros Justice Fellow. It's a pleasure to have her as our guest today. LaTanya, welcome to Shades of Freedom.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here with you and the listening audience on today.
2: That's great. I really am looking forward to this conversation. You've had other jobs in your career, but When did you realize that justice reform was going to be your life's work?
1: Well, I did not realize justice reform was going to be my life work early on in my growing up and my college years. um, Starting out, you know, as a nurse, I've always wanted to be a nurse. I always wanted to be, you know, in the field of serving my grandparents um, who were, you know, hardworking people. My grandmother was, you know, a homemaker. My grandfather retired from um, a local pipe shop here I work where he worked mm-hmm. for almost 40 years. My mom being a, you know, postal worker. So all of that stuff played and my grandmother loved to cook. So all of that played into, you know, servantship. I found myself all the time when we were growing up playing and like my brothers got hurt or people getting hurt in the community. I always, you know, wanted to be the one that, you know, to make their their boo-boos well or, you know, putting band-aids on, you know, whatever they had going on. And I said, oh, I, you know, so I just knew early on that I wanted to be, you know, into some type of servant leadership role. And so nursing was just, you know, something that I desired to do. So I went to nursing school, um, started out in LPN school, and the goal was to go back to be a nurse anesthetist, but then life, you know, some terms changed and some things happened in life with my son at the age of 18 being arrested. And then at the age of 19 being sent to sentence to a 20 year prison sentence, you know, in the state of Alabama. And so I was doing that time. I didn't know a whole lot about, you know, laws or cr- the criminal justice field. Cause I was, you know, was only for me, we getting a parking ticket, going to court and paying it, but it got much more deeper, you know, than that for me. Um, and that was the turning point um, that I knew that I had to really dig in because my son was young, had never been in any trouble. And he, I, you know, was taken away from the family and going to prison. And that led me back into, you know, picking up where I had left off and getting my degree in criminal justice uh, while working full time uh, with the uh, Jefferson County Health Department. And so I went back and, and acquired my uh, bachelor's of science in uh, criminal justice uh Security and administration from the University of Phoenix. And that led me into, you know, my career changing. Uh,
2: And so being from Birmingham, uh, what ways does the justice system play an outsized role uh, in the city of Birmingham and for uh, community members?
1: Well, you know, being from Birmingham, Alabama, the civil rights capital, you know, what we're, you know, people know us for for all the the civil rights and Dr. Martin Luther King coming here and you know going to jail himself, you know, fighting for equality, you know, for 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 marginalized communities, and so that role that it plays and and what we see is you know community organizing and being an African American woman is you know, leading an organization around our criminal justice reform, it, the whole spectrum when it comes to parole, you know, mass incarceration, uh, just the things that you're seeing the black and brown communities being affected by. We know that we really have to be very intentional on, on you know, coming together, organized. We, you know, we may not all agree to disagree, but we know that when we do come together collectively, that we coming together for a sole mission and that's just the end things that are uh, practices and harmful practices that have criminalized black and brown communities.
2: You know, when you were running for city council, you emphasized community involvement, revitalization, and safety as key to your platform. Uh, What does it look like now that you're in office and how have you engaged the community uh, to create solutions to injustice?
1: With public safety, you know, being the first African-American woman in this state to chair public safety is just unheard of. Especially, mm-hmm. you know, coming from the Bull Carnage. days, you wouldn't have a black woman leading public safety. But, you know, it, it weighs heavy, you know, on me uh, because I go to bed every night thinking about what can I do, you know, that others have not done to drive change, you know, to do things differently. So I'm often in conversation with the mayor you know, about what we can do uh, to drive our community and safe. But we do know that it is going to take a collective of people because we've had three shootings here, you know, deadly shootings here. And so we have to really be intentional. And at some point, it has to become personal to people in community that the police cannot do this by themselves. It has to become personal because when you have people running around town in the broad daylight shooting guns and have no regard for life when does it come personal with people in you know in community when does this become personal that a bullet does not have eyes it can hit you at any given day and so we have to you know that's my message you know to people being chair of public safety this has to be personal to you it really has to be personal and then we come with these real-time solutions where we work with you know, grassroots organizations and people that that we can deploy into the community to become violent interrupters and clergy and just a collective body of people, reimagining what our communities can really look like and really get diving in deep and holding those that are doing things accountable. And hopefully we can turn their life around and, and start leading them into a positive uh, direction.
2: I want to continue on what you were saying about this becomes personal. Um, what needs have community members shared with you when it comes to public safety? What have they talked to you about?
1: Well, they want to see more community police and they want to see, you know, more uh, police, you know, being personal, you know, with people in the community. Right now, we know across the country it's a big distrust. And so I think we we have to really sit down and have these hard conversations that People are not ready for it. But it's time that we move in that direction and start healing, doing some healing and reconciliation because that's so super important. That's the only way that we're going to be able to move forward when we start seeing how can we come in and have this collective conversation. Yeah, we may scream fuss and fight, but at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. And that's the things that people that... You know, talking to police officers, being a chair of public safety. Most people recognize who I am when I'm out in public, and we have this conversation. And what they appreciate is I understand. I've been in those situations, you know, being an African-American female working on a rural white town, being and, and, and supervising 95% people that were on my caseloads were Caucasian individuals. So I was in high intensity, you know, every day, in high intensity danger every day for my life. And so I just, you know, really have to thank God that he kept and he protected me, you know, during those times. But I understand and people most people don't understand, you know, when you in these high tense situations, uh, I'm not by no means, um, you know, sidelining with anybody to, to go into situations and your first defense is deadly. No, I'm not saying that. So I want the listening audience to understand that that's not what I'm saying. But at some point. We're going to have to come together and get together and make sure that we are, you know, at least having conversation. And the trust factor has to be there. And making sure that we, you know, working with grassroots organizations that can provide the resources and the tools and the skills that people in community need. You know, I'm working really hard. And I've, you know, like I was telling you guys that I am looking at some other measures like when it, you know, that mental illness and homelessness is a big crisis across the country, but do we really need police going in? You know, trying to assist people that are already traumatized. And so I'm a I'm a I'm a proponent that we really need to deploy people that are mental health professions, uh, people that work with the homeless population to get the sco- the skills and tools that the people need to start turning their life around. So those are the, the the ways that I'm looking at holistic ways. And so let me make make this real clear: very holistic ways where Community is involved where we, 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 are, we take care of our own. We take care of our own people. And so we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to provide, you know, resources for people that need groceries or we want to make sure that we have the health care that people need and be able to point the resources. So that's what I'm about when it comes to public safety, making sure that we have the resources, making sure that every collective body from community to clergy, Healthcare, education, all these systems—you know—talking together, like you say, it's so super important that we invest in this data and governance. And so that's what I'm about: holistic approach, making sure that we can we can chime in on where we need to deploy resources, and we know that that data is going to be very important for us to do that.
2: You know, um, you mentioned just a second ago about the importance of healing and reconciliation. And given Birmingham's history and, as you said, being the seat of the civil rights movement, what does healing and reconciliation look like?
1: Nobody is born to be a criminal. I I tell people I I carried a child for nine months. I didn't I didn't birth a criminal. So I make that real clear. My son did not come into this world to be a criminal, criminal. But I do know that generational curses are flowing down through, through the family unit. And I really believe that we, in order for families to be healed and made whole, and for those that are marginalized, that we make, we got to make sure that we we got the right people that are healing, healing, healing justice people, uh, restorative justice individuals that have been trained because you have to have people that have this, this training to know to be able to go into a community to be able to even start this process. So that's super important to make sure that we are not sending people in community causing further harm, you know, just doing things because they, feel, they say this is what I believe needs to happen. No, we need the real professionals. And so we want to work with those that have been highly trained in restorative work, healing justice work, healing practices, transformative justice to come into, you know, Birmingham, work with me, and 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 get those that want to, you know, go into in, into these marginalized community housing units and and start this process and start working this thing from the inside out. And so I do know that looks like we got to go and get the whole family unit. When you start working with a young man that has traveled down the road and he's traveling down the wrong road and 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 is just as impacted. We got to go back and get the mother, the sister, the brother. We got to go back and start that healing process with the whole family and let that spread abroad.
2: So we talked about the fact that you uh, founded the Alabama Justice Initiative. So can you describe the work of the initiative and its goals?
1: Well, Alabama Justice Initiative was, you know, they said, turn your pain into purpose. And so actually when I wanted the 2018 and was as Selected as a Soros Justice Fellowship with 15 other amazing individuals. And so Alabama justice was a part of my project. My project was probation and parole practices in Alabama, and it was birth. And the goal for, for that organization mission, and I'm just paraphrasing, the mission is to um, work with directly impact the formerly incarcerated people and community members to teach them how to organize and advocate for legislative change. And so I really believe if anything is going to change here, we have to know the machines that we are fighting. We have to know what makes it turn, what's the next uh, uh, screw that we need to put in to keep it going and to, to destroy So I really believe that in order to d- destroy any system, you need to know what makes that system move and what are the players in organizing. Who we know who our people are. Who are the people that we need to be targeting, you know, to get uh, uh, the real accomplishment that we are trying to do? So the goal of the the organization is to, to, uh, you know, to get directly and formally incarcerated people and community members and give them the tools and skills they need to learn how to advocate and learn the legislative landscape and the process here in Alabama.
2: And uh, can you describe um, the uh, impact that uh, the Alabama Justice Initiative has had thus far?
1: Oh, wow. Um, Yes, uh, we've had some great wins. Um, Recently, two years ago, and we're still here today, we actually launched a campaign that's called Communities Not Prison when we learned that the DOJ had filed a a report in 2018 under the uh, Trump administration saying that Alabama had the worst prisons in the nation. And so we quickly, you know, uh, took heed to that. And so we saw you know the many deaths that was that was occurring in the prison system on a daily basis. Our prison uh, system turning into a mental health ward. Most people are in prison just strung out in, on drugs, and so many suicides committed at an all-time rate. Even um, correctional staff, uh, uh, police brutality on on the inside. So we knew that we had to like really spring into action, and so we launched a campaign called "Communities, Not Prison." Really, we replicated at uh, the close to jail ATL by uh, Women on the Rise and uh, the Racial Justice uh, Organization over there, and we replicated that um, that initiative uh, where Miss Marilyn Wind, who runs Women on the Rise, has started that um, that initiative, and we replicated it and called our campaign "Communities Not Prison" to change um, that and Knew that we had to start attacking this 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 prison bill, and so we were able to, in the beginning, to stop the prison construction, and where we were able to get uh, Barclays, KeyBank, Stefo, and a mutual fund to just walk away from the prison construction deal—a thirty-year uh, prison lease construction deal—was um, able to go in and kill, the, you know, the momentum. And uh, just kill all the players, to include Core Civic, who was actually had gotten a contract with the prisons to build. And so shortly after we did that, of course, the state of Alabama and and the legislators and our governor was not happy about that. They came back (laughs) in and called a special session and was able to, uh, you know, sign into law where they were able to extract $400 million of the ARP money to build prisons. And so... Then we we learned that the U.S. Treasury, one of their findings was that you could not construct, you know, buildings, prisons or jails with this money. And so the governor is still going to try it. And so we just learned this week that they've signed a contract with um, Caldwell Construction, LLC, to build a 4,000 bed specialty prison in Elmore County. So we are working hard to make sure that that does not happen. So the work still continues, to fight, you know, still continues. So we have been, we were successful doing that, and we still are there. And so we've been doing a, another initiative called participatory defense where we have been very successful in helping families, those that have been accused of, uh, you know, of, a, of a, uh, a, a crime. And we were able to uh, get charges dropped off a school teacher that was f- uh, facing felony assault charges on the police officers. And so... With Alabama Justice Initiative, um, we've, a, we've uh, started a fellowship. It's called a Reimagine Justice Fellowship. So we are tweaking that right now um, um, to go back in and, and, and start that fellowship over. And we've, we've graduated two cohorts. So we've graduated a total of 16 great organizers that we got out here, you know, in these communities. just doing some good work.
2: That's great. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that wonderful work. I wanted to go back to your time for a moment as a parole officer. Uh, how does your experience as a parole officer inform your current work, and what did it reveal to you about the justice system?
1: Well, my experience with a parole officer, I worked in a, a little small town called the Funiac Springs, Florida, which is the panhandle. And so mm. that really opened up my eyes, you know, being a black woman, the only African-American female uh, in the office, and at the time, my son was sitting in an Alabama prison. And so I, my mindset was just different, um, you know, um, being in a very powerful position where I could shape somebody's life or or the way that I wanted it, you know, whether I went in and everything was based off of, you know, how you felt. And so I know I, did, I, I didn't want to be like that with people because I, my son was sitting in prison. I knew once he got released that I wanted to make sure that somebody treated him fair, and so I—I I was on a different path. I—I was—I went to my circuit administrator and said, you know, I want to start going into, you know, inside the prisons, kind of educating people on, you know, like reentry. So I, you know, started um my. My, I was named a resource officer in my office because I was helping those that was on supervision, and so we were able to go in and ask some some things like, okay, you need to go to treatment. What have we? And then we could put that into our recommendation, and that kept the persons in the community. You kept them planning in the community, but you got them the help. You know that they needed. You know because jail is just wasn't a the place they wasn't gonna get better in jail. So it didn't suit. You know me to you know be that type of officer that send you to jail. My goal was to help you. And so that was one way. And then I seen the disparities. You know, my son went to prison for robbery one and was given a 20 year prison sentence. And I supervised individuals in Florida that had robbed people and they were on five years probation. So I saw, you know, those disparities. And I could have took that personally and just made somebody's life, you know, just really uncomfortable. But that wasn't my goal. I didn't have that heart.
2: And what about it um, helped shape the way you think about your approach to criminal justice reform? What about that experience uh, has helped your thinking around it?
1: That experience, again, I'm going to use my son as a scenario where I saw my son, you know, first time offender, armed robbery, 20 years. And where I saw somebody in Florida that was a first time offender that was not the same color my son that had a five year you know, prob- was on probation for five years. So that approach right there just really made me look at how the criminal, ju- how unfair the criminal justice system was when it came to sentencing, um, your color, all of that. And so they just gave me a different scope and guided me to where I am today and, and leading me down the path of doing the work that I am doing today.
2: So what long-term hopes do you have for Birmingham and what do you wish to see your community achieve, particularly when it comes to criminal justice transformation?
1: The long term hope that I have for Birmingham is, you know, for us to keep moving very progressively, but making sure that every neighborhood and every person that lives in neighborhood is, is served in such a way that we all, or, you know, on level playing fields. It's equality all across the board for everyone. And so the long-term hopes that I have for criminal justice um, transformation and reform in Alabama is to make sure that we get into our communities and, and educate those that have lost hope when it comes to voting, civic engagement, when it, when it, when it comes to the electoral process, uh, getting so strong where we can be like, vote that's in New Orleans. That's ran by Norris Henderson and 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 Bruce Riley and, and that that group of people. That those guys that are formerly incarcerated, they have really really made a mark on criminal justice reform and changing laws. Where when people are running for office, that we shift this power, so. We got these, this, this, this big, we got these formerly incarcerated directly impacted people and community members hold this power where candidates have to come to us to be vetted to make to to, to get our approval, you know, to run for office. And where we become so strong, C4 packs, where we become so strong, where we are holding the power because actually we really hold the power. We are the power brokers, and so the goal is to get out here, and this is what I tell people in community being a counselor. You are the power broker. I'm your advocate. I'm your mouthpiece, and so exercise that power. So we want to make sure that we, you know, we deploy that back out into communities and and, and building up power and letting people know nothing runs unless you approve it, and so in order for a person to be elected for office, you have to approve it for them to be there. And that's the same thing that we could take throughout this nation right here in Alabama. We can, we, can, we can be so powerful, we can shape our next governor. You say Alabama is red, but we don't believe that. We, we believe the reason that it is red because most people have lost hope. And so it's going to take people like myself and others to really get out in these communities and dig deep and bring that uh, level of hope back to get people to know that you are the power brokers and the makers and you got the power to change and shape anything in this state that you want to see happen.
2: You know, we always ask our guests the same final question on Shades of Freedom, which is this. When you hear the phrase Shades of Freedom, what does it mean to you now and for the future?
1: Ooh, I envision shades of freedom where we all can just come together, the black, brown, indigenous, all colors of people come to coming together as one and really just uh, magnifying and honing in on, you know, what Dr. King believed in, equality for every boy, woman, girl, man, you know, people just coming together and, and just celebrating. Um and that's what I think about shades of freedom, you know, where we all safe in community. Nobody is afraid of nobody. When I think about how I grew up, you know, when it comes to shades of freedom, we knew everybody on the on the block and and we were able to get along if you didn't have something somebody else had, it, you know, that's what I equate shades of freedom, you know, to and when I think about shades of freedom again, um, you know, thinking about looking from sitting on my grandfather's porch and my grandparents put, um, you know, on Saturdays when my grandparent father went to the farmer's market and even his own garden, you know, garden, you know, going back to those golden old days. So that's what I think about, you know, when it comes to shades of freedom, you know, um, quality education, quality health, health care for all, you know, all across the board, everybody is equal. That's what I think about when I think about shades of freedom.
2: Well, Counselor Tate, it has been such a pleasure having you on our podcast, Shades of Freedom, and we wish you all the best and all the great work you're doing, not only in Birmingham and Alabama, but for the country. Thank Thank you. you.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us for Shades of Freedom from the Aspen Institute's Criminal Justice Reform Initiative. We'll be back soon with more thought-provoking guests, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or you can find all of our past episodes by visiting our website at www.aspeninstitute.org cjri. This podcast was engineered and produced by Natalie Jones, with research assistance by Will and Patrick. It was edited by Ken Thompson with production support by Christian Devers and Wanda Mann. CJRI's programs were made possible by support from Arnold Ventures, the Balmer Group, the Bank of America Charitable Foundation, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, the Ford Foundation, and Slack, Inc.